All right. Good job. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. All right. So we, if you are part of King's Kids, you can go ahead and be dispatched to your class. And um, there will be a Spanish translation today. Yep. So you can dial in. That number is on our website. And uh, there's also a scanner in the back. And we are moving on through the Gospel of John. We're trekking on through. And we are going to be in John chapter 18, verses 38 to 40. John chapter 18, verses 38 to 40. And we sort of covered a little bit of 38 last week when we talked about what is truth. So we're going to skim over that. And we're going to get to a real interesting passage here where we get introduced to a new uh, character named Barabbas. So let me read for you. Pilate said to him, verse 38, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went back out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber or in certain translations, it says bandit. So this is a real interesting character, as you guys know, for if you're just coming into this, Jesus is about to go to the cross He had just finished his last meal with his uh, disciples, the Last Supper, or what we've we've all heard of that. And Jesus becomes arrested. He has now started his trial. He went face to face with Pontius Pilate, the clear representative of the ruler of the world. You could say the highest authority. And now in this passage, we see Jesus come face to face with really the polar opposite of that. And that is somebody that is a thief, a bandit, an insurrectionist, and a murderer. That's what we learned from the other other passages about Barabbas. But John, in a very, very unique way, excludes those things and focuses on Barabbas, tells us very little about him, and has him standing next to Jesus. So to introduce this topic to you, I know some, uh, most of us here are familiar with the idea of a foreclosure. <clears throat> if a house goes into a foreclosure, it can only be redeemed under certain requirements, meaning get the house out of foreclosure and back to the rightful owner. In order for that to happen, the bank who gave that person a loan has to be paid. That's the judgment holder. And it has to be the exact amount needed to resolve the debt. Now, if the rightful owner of the property fails to satisfy this debt within a certain period of time, the house then goes to an auction or a sheriff's sale, and it's often purchased by another party. But even in that case, the rightful owner of the property has a window of time Even after someone else buys it, they have a window of time, a redemption window, that they can reclaim that house if, in fact, they do come up with the money. But 
It has to be the exact amount and it must be paid in full in cash. Now, when we consider why Jesus came to earth, many scriptures, many doctrines come to mind. He paid our sin debt. He came to fulfill the law. He came to defeat sin. He came to defeat evil, to become king, to become a savior, to become our Lord, and so on and so forth. And these are all very extremely important tenets of our faith. But one of the most important qualifications in order for all of this to happen and for God to reclaim his creation and to save his people from the requirements of his own justice, he needed a faithful man. He knew that mankind had failed. Beginning with Adam, Adam broke the covenant. Israel, Israel broke the covenant. Neither of these were free from sin. Neither of these were able to do what needed to be done. So what did God do? God came down himself. The son of God, the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, in one swift punch, and in order to satisfy all the requirements of the holy transaction that was needed, that had to take place to redeem the world and to redeem his people, he had to become a man. He had to become a human being. Better said is he had to become man. Not just a man. He had to become man, human. The scriptures tell us how, as summarized in the Uh, shorter catechism. It says, how did he become a man? How did Christ, being the son of God, become man? Christ, the son of God, became man by taking onto himself a true body, a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're not going to talk about the how. We're going to talk about very specifically the why. Why did Jesus have to become man? Now, again, there's lots of ways we can cover this, but I'm going to do my very best to stay very specific to what John is saying in this passage and try to be as faithful as we can to this verse. Because in this passage, John just doesn't mention Jesus being a man. He puts a heavy emphasis on the words he uses to describe Jesus. Not this man, John writes. Not only is that profound, but it's also mentioned at the very end of the discussion with Pilate. And it's done immediately before Jesus then goes to the cross in chapter 19. So it's the very end of the chapter in 18. And more importantly, he introduces us to this person, this man, lowercase m, named Barabbas. So what is John trying to tell us by putting Barabbas, the lowercase man, next to Jesus, the uppercase man, about him becoming man? Is it just a neat comparison that he wants us to get? Or is he pointing to something deeper into the te- in the text that's really and truly, I hope you'll see by the end, the key to our redemption in this world and in the next? 
So I believe John first wants to draw our attention to Jesus's true humanness, his true humanness. He was really and truly man. He was a real man. The, if you've been staying with us through the Gospel of John, John is a writer of irony. His whole entire book is very ironic. There's actually volumes written on the irony in the Gospel of John. He loves to write cryptically, yet if you know how he writes and you do your research and you do your context, like who, what, where, when, and why, you get what he's trying to say. <clears throat> and he doesn't stop. In this, par- in this passage here, we see this John-like irony, which I believe is the crux of the message comparing Jesus to Barabbas in the way that he does. So we're going to get to that. But first, I want to talk about the first thing is, is why did Jesus become a man? Well, Jesus, the son of God, had to become fully man, several reasons. But the top one is to start a new mankind. So we have old mankind, and we have the new mankind, or the new human race that Jesus is starting. And when I say new, remember, Jesus says, I make all things new. He doesn't make all new things. He makes all things new. And I stole that from my daughter's professor in New Testament, by the way. I have to give him credit for that. I thought that was really interesting. Jesus doesn't make new things. He makes all things new. And that's what he did with the human race by becoming a man. Now, why? Why did this have to happen? Well, number one, he had to wipe out the effects of original sin by bypassing the seed and the lineage of Adam. Now, this was crucially important. Because as Romans 5.12 said, or says, wherefore, as by one man... By one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death now passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. See, in Adam, all die. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So this is called a headship. This is called um, moving out from underneath one line or one person's headship or authority, which in God's eyes is doomed, condemned, cursed by God. Nothing can be done by those under Adam at all to to find pleasure with God. They must be moved by the spirit of God under Christ. And in order for this to happen, Jesus had to come and be that second Adam. He had to take on this fleshly body. Hebrews 10.5 says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Why? Why the body? Well, because he had to draw all the sin of every single person that believes in him into that flesh of Jesus, and he condemned sin in the flesh of his son who became a man, fully man and obviously fully God. 
<clears throat> now, other people say, well, how is this possible, Pat? Because, you know, what about Mary? Because she was a sinner. If you read Mary's, and I know if you come from a Catholic background like I did, you're taught that Mary was sinless. And the reason that that doctrine was created was because of this problem. If Jesus was born, okay, we see that, you know, God supernaturally came upon Mary. The Holy Spirit, Mary, will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called Son of God. But what about Mary's DNA? What about Mary's DNA that is in Jesus? Well, see, in the scriptures, we learn that the seed of the man is what passes on sin. <clears throat> this is why God had preserved the lineage of the capital S seed, meaning Christ, through the whole Old Testament, through the people of Israel, through the sacrifices of the law, circumcision. This was God's covering over that seed. It was bulletproof, but temporary until Christ comes and fulfills what needs to be done so that he can take that sin away permanently. <clears throat> so I, in Mary's uh, Magnificat, she calls Jesus her, she calls God her savior. The only people that need saviors are those that are in trouble because of sin. But the funny thing is, is for me, and <clears throat> I don't know, it's not that difficult, because if you take the same thing and you go back <clears throat> To the first Adam, Jesus being the second Adam, how was the first Adam created? The first Adam was created by God. His DNA was made perfect by God out of nothing, out of the dirt. His DNA was made so there was no corruption, no sin, there was no curse. Adam yet chose to sin against God and he became cursed. So I would have to believe that when Jesus was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary, not only did he bypass the law saying that the sin passes on through the seed of the man, but I believe that he was supernaturally created with the DNA of a man. And yes, he was completely 100% free from original sin. And that could only happen by him becoming a man. Now, he also fully eliminated, <clears throat> by doing this, the consequences of being under Adam. Now, how did he do this? Because I mentioned it before, he quenched the wrath of God. Now, I don't, I'll, I'll say wrath here, but a lot of times when people say the wrath of God, they just they think of Godzilla coming out of the ocean. You know, God's wrath is upon you. And I don't think that that would even be... Uh, comparable to what God's wrath really is. But when you hear the word wrath, you see it in the scriptures. <clears throat> you, you, you see that, um, that he was, um, uh, that the wrath of God abides on us and that he quenched, he was a, propi a propitiation for our sins, meaning he satisfied that wrath. But when you see that, I want you to think of the wrath of God but think of the wrath of God because of the justice that God demands. He demands that justice to be satisfied. Why? Because of his character. He's holy. He's just. 
He's loving. He can't just wink at sin. He could if he wanted to. But then would you want to serve a God? Would you want to, would you want to, would you like a judge that acted that way? That treated the person that was charged with a crime against you? That's yeah, okay. Just get out of the courtroom. You're good to go. What do we scream? Injustice. Why? Because we have that written in our hearts. Justice is doing that which is right. And sinners are only saved by God. They're only saved by God by being saved by his justice. And here, listen to Romans 5.8. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled with to God through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? <clears throat> it says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned like Adam did. It's still, death still reigned because it was a curse by God. Eat of the fruit and you shall die. And everyone under Adam is cursed as well. By default, because of who God is. But here it says, never it says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. And in verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So by the disobedience of Adam, we're all made sinners. But by the obedience and faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we, by coming under him, are now looked at with the status of righteous, not guilty. You can't become guilty ever in Christ. Your sin is gone. It's taken away. And what I quoted before in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be that propitiation, that satisfaction for our sin. It's an appeasing of that justice. Now, also remember that when God, when Jesus died on the cross, it's his blood that saved us. The life is in the blood. Okay, there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Again, that's God's rule. God's not living up to some higher rule like, oh, I got to do it because my law's up here. No, God's name, God, the character of God, his law and his his Bible, his word flows as an expression of who he is. So these are all expressions of who God is. It's not God sitting there trying to be, yeah, you know what, I think this is going to happen. I think that, I think we'll make it like, no, God just is. He's the God who is, who was, and is to come. It's who he is. So this blood that he spilled had to enter into the Holy of Holies in heaven. No one can enter into the Holy of Holies in heaven other than who? God and Jesus. So Jesus, God wanted that priest to be able to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and be sinless, but we know he wasn't. 
We know that he could be struck down if he didn't revere what he was doing. And then when that priest died, we had to get another priest, then another priest, and then another priest. But Jesus, by becoming a man and being fully God, fully satisfies, not only to quench the wrath and justice of God, because only a holy and righteous and just God can quench the wrath and justice of a holy and just God, but he also brought that, was only the one qualified to bring that blood in to cover our sins. Only his blood can fully satisfy the demands of his justice. Listen to this. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Again, not over and over, eternal redemption. That's you. You are eternally redeemed in Christ. It's nothing, it's unretractable. You are his forever because he was able to go in and he presented that holy, the holiness of his blood that satisfied the justice of God. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. It's important you get that. God didn't condemn Jesus. He condemned the sin and he condemned the flesh, the sin in the flesh. Jesus was an innocent lamb. And he willingly took on all that sin that God laid upon him. And then God wiped it out in one punch. What we have to do is we have to see our hopelessness, the hopelessness of humanity without Jesus, without believing this Jesus, believing in this Jesus, but most importantly, believing what the Bible says about this Jesus. Something that you may not be able to fully understand ever in this side of eternity. What I mean by in this age. When we are, when we are, we will then know as we're known, the Bible says, in the next age. But we must realize that not only the hopelessness of humanity without this, but ourselves as well. Jesus can be with you through everything and anything now and forever as well. Think about that. He became a man and he suffered like a man. He was tempted like a man, yet he came out without sin. And he is now able to not only intercede for us on the side of God, but also with us as well. Regardless of what your struggles are going through, Jesus wants you to come to him. Kevin gave a great study on this at the men's group, Kevin Engel, on, on drawing near to God. We, are, we look at that scripture and go, oh, that's really so cool. But no, do we really understand what that means? We don't, we don't have to stand back and slowly approach. We can run in with confidence. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the help of need. If my youngest son ran in here right now and said, Daddy, I need to talk with you, I would get down from the pulpit and spank him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
I would, I would get down from the pulpit and he'd be there. He can run in to the, to the church. I don't care what's going on. He could come in and he does. He'll come into my office no matter what's going on. I got signs and warnings and everything on my office at my house. He just walks right in. But that's us too. We can go right in to the throne of grace. We can go to Jesus in a time of need. Not when we're all good and perfect and everything. Whatever it is that, that you need personally in this life, you can go to him. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe you're struggling and you don't know what to do. You don't even know how you're going to pay your rent. You don't know how you're going to pay your mortgage. You don't know what's going to do. You don't know how you're going to pay for this or that. I'm not saying God's going to give you the money. I'm not saying that. But go to him first. Maybe you're struggling physically, mentally, health problems, marriage problems. Jesus can identify with you and yet... Not only that, he's welcoming you in. Come, draw near to him. But what we do is we do like Adam and Eve. We run and hide and cover ourselves with fig leaves. <clears throat> do you have notes on that, on that, Kevin? If you have notes on your Bible study, I really recommend that you get it. The, the study, the men's group that we did and ask Kevin for it about this drawing near. It's so important. <clears throat> so that's the foundation. Jesus had to become a man. He had to cover this up. You know, now I want to get more into the actual text just for a few minutes here. Don't get scared. And I want to try to see this reason why John is bringing our attention to Jesus as a man here. He doesn't do this. He, he, he hasn't done this. He uses the word man in the scripture but I believe it's only once or twice that he uses the phrase, this man, which is very hard to translate out of the Greek. The word man is not even in there. It's used in the context. When you say this man, it's putting a tremendous emphasis on what's going on in the subject of that sentence. The emphasis could be contempt. Or the emphasis that could be exaltation. Obviously here, it's contempt. He's drawing our attention to bring us to this, to here, to bring our attention to this word man. man. And then he starts this sharp contrast. Now, if you just read through the irony and contrast here, <clears throat> he went out. So Pilate, obviously, right? He, what is truth? He goes out. And he says to the Jews, I find no guilt in him. No guilt. Pilate said there's no reason that this guy should be technically arrested and killed. He's no real threat to the throne. I'm asking him, are you a king? And he's telling me my kingdom's not of this world. And he's telling me everybody who's of the truth hears my voice. He looked at Jesus probably as some spiritual guy, some spiritual guru. What are we going to do? We're killing him for that. What's really going on here? <clears throat> but yet now you have a custom that I release someone for you at Passover. What is going on right now? It's Passover. What was the Passover? The Passover was that innocent lamb got killed and the blood went on the doorpost. And when the angel of death came in to execute justice on the Egyptians, the people were in bondage there. Those that had the blood covering them on Passover were passed over. 
And we have the actual real human Passover standing right here. Do you then wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? Now remember, Pilate was, there was, you go back a couple sermons ago and we talked about why he said these things here. He was basically trying to uh, provoke the Jews a little bit. He's not going, hey, this is your king, right? You you, you want me to give? That's not what he was saying. He's saying king of the Jews and the Jewish people, or we hear when, when Jesus is on the cross, don't call him king of the Jews. He's saying he was king of the Jews. So Pilate's jabbing him here. But then they cried out again saying, and here it is, not this man, but Barabbas. Now in the early manuscripts, um, in Matthew 26, 16 and 19, you don't have to go there. This is the passage that Matthew, he's talking about Barabbas. Barabbas's name in the early manuscripts was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. Now, I believe they probably took that, like didn't include that because it would be awful confusing uh, unless they really went out of the way to explain it. But do you know what Barabbas means? Son of the father. So John is showing us here, not this man, Jesus, the true son of the father, but Jesus, this man, Jesus Barabbas, lowercase man, he's son of the father too. Now Barabbas was a robber. He was a bandit. Now, John calls him a a robber and a bandit. But like I said, in Mark and Luke, we see he was in for rebellion, insurrection, and as a murderer. What irony there. The Jewish people probably took or did the same thing to Barabbas. They probably said, what are you doing? Causing insurrection, causing the Romans to come down to us? We're turning you in. And now the Jews are saying, let's let Let him go, the murderer, the insurrectionist, the robber, the bandit, and crucify Jesus, the innocent one. Now, John uses the same word in John chapter 10, verses 1, and in verse 8 for the word bandit. Do you remember John 10? It's all about the what? The sheep, the true shepherd. And, the, and, and those bandits that come in to rob, steal, and destroy. They try, to, they try to get in another way. Same word. John is telling us here for a reason. <clears throat> it's it's the, the, the hypocrisy of this to seek to release this true, real political prisoner who deserved death under Rome, yet they chose to want the innocent killed. And that's exactly what we do before we come to Christ. We scream Barabbas. We scream, I don't want this man as my king. I don't want this man to rule over me. And we are the ones. We are the bandits. We are the guilty. All of us right now, we could sit down and talk for hours of the guilt that we feel. You could say, oh, I don't have no guilt. I have no regrets. I'm not. I, I doubt it. I think we all struggle with guilt in our life. Jesus had no guilt. He never sinned. He never offended anyone purposely to hurt them. He never was cruel to someone. He never stole. He never lied. 
He did exactly opposite of that. He did all things that he did pleased the Father. Yet Barabbas is the one that goes and gets set free. Now, why is John showing us this irony here? Well, if you go, you don't have to go there, but Luke, I'm sorry, Leviticus 16. It's the story of the scapegoats. Here's how it goes. There's basically two scapegoats that come into the high priest in the temple on the day of atonement, which is called Yom Kippur. The priest gets a scarlet robe, as we learn from the, from, it's a, and I, sh- I shouldn't say robe, it's more of a cloth or a scarf or uh, a rope, whatever you want to call it, and ties it around the, both of the goats. Now the scapegoat is the one that gets laid, the hands get laid on these goats, and the scapegoat is the one that gets set free, representing the guilty being set free. So the guilt is upon both, but the scapegoat gets let out into the wilderness. <clears throat> in Matthew 27, 17, and in John 19, 2, next chapter, we see Jesus with this scarlet robe. Now, the cool thing about the scarlet robe was that when they put the scarlet robe or rope around the goat, the one that gets sent out into the wilderness is the scapegoat, but the one that stays for the sacrifice is called the Lord's. And the tradition goes that if the Lord was approving of that, that scarlet scarf that was around that goat would turn white. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. We know this, Isaiah 118. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. So the priest would impute the guilt of the people on the scapegoat and let it go free. But he would take the Lord's goat and he would take it outside the camp and sacrifice it. And then he would come back with the blood and pour it on the altar for atonement. I can't help but think that he is speaking to us, John, the Holy Spirit, and showing us this in combination, this great um, summing up of the Passover lamb and Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the two goats getting, uh, getting impute, the goat getting set free, and then the Lord's goat getting sacrificed And that blood would be cast upon the altar. The priest would wash his hands as Pilate washed his hands. So I believe John is giving us this contrast and irony of the two and the guilty being let go, the innocent getting sacrificed. You see, we are that goat. We have that guilt. We have the sin. We know we've transgressed against God's law. Every single person in here does. Don't care if you believe in God or don't. You know deep in your heart that there's a God. The Bible says all men suppress the truth in righteousness. There's not one good. No, not one. So why? Because of our sin. But God goes up to us and he has has Jesus here and he has you there. He has Jesus there, and he has Barabbas there, the guilty murderer, the one that caused insurrection, the one that deserves to die. That's us. He goes, 
you get set free. My goat, my lamb is going to provide the sacrifice that's needed. And that's what we're seeing here. You see, more importantly, John is putting us in this scene with a choice. The Jews were presented with a choice. Pilate was presented with a choice. He wants us to choose the man. Which man are we going to choose? Little M or big M? The good shepherd or the bandit, the robber? You see, once you get changed by Christ, you are instantly moved of the status from being under Adam and being moved over here into the status of being completely 100% forgiven. So when you feel the guilt, when you feel um, the desire to want to run away from God, you want to, you want to, maybe you don't want to run away. Maybe you just want to avoid them a little bit because of that guilt. Know that Jesus is sitting there going, why? I want, this is when I want you to come to me. I don't want you to come to me only when everything's great. I want you to come to me for the biggest thing that you need, and that is forgiveness and grace and mercy. And he does that for us when we choose him over Barabbas. So Jesus, the son of God, he became man to set the guilty free. He became man to free us from our sin nature. He bypassed Adam and put us under himself. He's now our head. And he saved us from the death sentence like Barabbas from the justice of God. See, good people don't need to hear this message. If you're really, really good, you don't need to hear this message. If you have no sin, you don't need to hear this message. The healthy do not need to go to the hospital. They don't need a physician. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He didn't come to call the good people because there were none, number one. But there are those that think they're good. So if that's you, I want to know, I want to tell you right now, I agree with you probably. If you and I hang out, and most of you I know personally, I love you. I think you're great. But see, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about holiness. The holiness that's that's needed to approach the throne of grace. You don't have that. You're guilty. You'll never get it under Adam. You must come only to Christ. And why wouldn't you? This is the free gift, Paul says in Romans 5. This is the free gift. It's almost like a double positive or double, I don't know. It's, it's free and it's a gift. Well, a gift is free. It should be free. But he's overemphasizing this. This is a free gift. He is calling sinners to come to him. <clears throat> Timothy 2.5, 1 Timothy. And I'll leave you with this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. One. And who does he say that is? It, he does, the, the word the is inserted into the text. The man, Christ Jesus. Man, Christ Jesus. 
Man, Christ Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your free gift of grace, Lord, that obviously we don't deserve. I pray, Father, that you will uh, help us, God, come to the throne of grace. Remind us of this time, this message of uh, when it comes to come to draw near, that we would realize that you as a man can identify and be whoever it is that we need you to be according to your word. I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would cry out to you, that they would search the scriptures to see if this is so, that they would just simply say, Lord, if you are the only way, if you are the way, the truth, and the life, show me. I come to you now. I pray that prayer for each one of us here. In Jesus' name, amen. So for our last hymn, we can uh, stand together. And um, we'll be singing.